Welcome to the Relog for Unconventional Leaders, where we help you craft the life you truly want by questioning the assumptions you have about how life works. My name is Sean, and I'll be your host on this journey. As a certified performance coach and special operations combat veteran, I help high-performing executives kick ass in their careers while connecting with deeply powerful insights that fuel their lives. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Or... Good afternoon or good evening, wherever you're listening. Things have been hopping on my end with a lot of travel for work, but luckily podcast technology allows me to keep the show going even when I'm away. I had an excellent experience recently in Tulum, Mexico with one of my clients who hosted a coaching retreat for some of his clients, which was definitely a, uh, a novel experience for me that somebody make that level of investment in their professional relationships. And I was really impressed, actually. Um, I was impressed because of the fact that my client really stayed hands-off and made no mention of his own business or the services that he offers. And it was really focused on the participants and the relationship that they were able to deepen while they were going through this retreat, because my client also participated. And sure, of course, there's there's a marketing or business component to this. But the thing that is striking for me is the fact that he was willing to invest a really hefty sum of money into giving these valued clients an experience that they likely wouldn't have ever encountered on their own or, or potentially selected on their own. And yet, also from the participant perspective, there was a collection of individuals who were not only willing to you know, fly to Mexico, but they were willing to open up and, and to really be honest and vulnerable with the things that were going on in their lives. It was a wonderful opportunity to dive deep into heuristics and biases and you know, deep emotional drivers. Plus, we managed to experience a, uh, God, I'm going to totally butcher the pronunciation of this, but a what I believe is called a temazcal ceremony, followed by a wonderful swim in a refreshing cenote. So if you've never been through a temazcal ceremony before, Essentially, I guess the layman's term for it would probably be a sweat lodge ceremony. And for those of you who have never done a sweat lodge ceremony, whether that's in a Native American tradition or a Scandinavian tradition or, of course, this um, Mexican tradition or Mayan tradition, I think, is, is the origin of it, it is an opportunity to not only sweat your brains out, but to... Get into a space where you push yourself. So as a, a sort of brief description, high level, there's a little bit of ceremony before, um, or, or I should say ritual, at the beginning of the ceremony. And then you enter this sort of dome structure, and it's pretty small. You have to you know, pretty much crawl in there on your hands and knees, I guess, depending on your size. But you know, it's pretty low to the ground. And you can think of it as sort of like a, a, a low hut. And once everybody's inside, there's a sort of a, I guess you could say a fire pit on in the center. And you sit around it in a, in a ring. And it's not necessarily for fire. It is for rocks that have been heated in a fire. And uh, from there, they end up sealing up this dome. So there's no or very little light that comes through. And then they start to hand in the rocks. And much like any sort of uh, sauna, I guess, the, the rocks provide the heat. And then when the water and the tea, the ceremonial tea, are poured on top of the rocks, then you start to get steam. And given that it was Mexico, it was already pretty hot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, on top of that, they start to bring in these superheated rocks and then proceed to pour water and tea over them so you get yourself into a, a nice sweaty place. And the thing that I think is very 
powerful about that experience is that it gets to a place where it's it's pretty uncomfortable. And obviously there's different levels um, in terms of how experienced or conditioned the group is. And so they'll bring in more rocks or less rocks. And the idea is that they're they're attempting to, and within the, the tradition itself, they're attempting to push your comfort zone. They're trying to get you into a place of challenge. And for many people, the darkness ends up feeling very, very claustrophobic as well, which only gets compounded when the steam starts to fill the space because you can actually physically feel this, not only the moisture, but also there's a certain increase in uh, perceived density of the air around you. And so for some people, this ends up being a really, really challenging sort of gut check experience. And the, the fact that you're in that space of darkness as well is something that I think is also quite powerful because what it ends up doing is it, it ends up eliminating distraction. And so frequently in our lives, we end up choosing to look away from the thing that is uncomfortable for us. Now, whether it's social media or whether it's work or whether it's um, going on a date or, you know, going out and drinking, you know, whatever the distraction methodology or tactic is, we're so rich in our ability to avoid looking at the thing that is really upsetting us or creating friction. And so in this ceremonial environment, you end up being in a space where there is no distraction. It's just you and the heat and this darkness and this kind of oppressive humidity. And you're just sweating and sweating and sweating. And, and of course, you know, during the ceremony, the, the shaman or the facilitator, if that feels more approachable to you, he speaks to you. He speaks to the group. And he helps you remember what these ceremonies were all about. These ceremonies that have been done for hundreds of years. And that it is partly the ability to tap into your inner warrior. And that inner warrior of yours is something that we've talked about in the past, you know, that we do come with this iron core. And yet so many of us never actually make the choices to tap into that, to expose that strength that we have inside of us. And that's a, a big part of the ceremony is to be able to tap into that warrior but also to be able to receive the embrace. And they, they refer to this ceremony and, and to the structure that you enter as the mother and to embrace your ability to be with the mother, to let your guard down, to not always feel like you have to hold it all together. And in some ways, you can actually you know lean on each other in that experience. And then... Once you've gone through that, the sweat lodge portion of it, it's followed by an opportunity to swim in a very refreshing cenote. And once your core temperature has been elevated to a certain point, it is actually very, very welcome to go jump into a nice, cool uh, body of water. And it was just beautiful. It's all these really vibrant greens and blues and just being able to swim amidst the rocks and the, the vegetation. It was, it was, it was truly amazing. So that was a, a little bit of an aside and took a little bit longer than I was expecting. But, um, you know, hey, uh, hopefully if you ever have an opportunity to visit Mexico where they do have this Temazcal ceremony or if you're able to do a Native American sweat lodge or Scandinavian sweat lodge, I think that these experiences are, they feel wonderful from a, a health perspective. It's it's very cleansing. And then again, that that dip into a nice cold body of water can be can be very very refreshing as well as the more sort of emotional gut check component that I just talked about but there is a bit of a tie in in terms of what I was just talking about in the ways in which we avoid friction the ways in which we distract ourselves from really looking at things that are challenging for us and you know that ties in with where we're headed today 
And that is to the ever encouraging world of breakups. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Like, what a way to start, huh? All right. Seriously. What we're looking at today is breakups because they are a fact of life. And putting our heads in the sand isn't going to help in the long run. And this is where I was saying that, you know, avoiding those points of friction through distraction isn't really going to be helpful for us, at least not in the long run. So given the holistic approach that I take with my coaching clients in, in coaching executives and coaching entrepreneurs, and then also, of course, the special operations combat veterans, it's common for me to learn a lot about my clients' lives, specifically their home lives and the relationship that they have with their partner. And there's a common theme that those we love the most can often stress us out the most as well. On the business side, when a corporate sponsor is interviewing me to work with one of its executives, I again often learn that the closest relationships at work are often laden with the most stress. So, I tend to ask a pretty blunt question that ultimately is intended to cut to the chase in assessing whether it even makes sense to hire me. Because I don't want to waste people's time or money. And I obviously also don't want to waste my time. So I want to make sure that I'm in a position and a larger situation where I can actually do good and I can actually be effective and helpful. So in this case, the question that I tend to ask is, is dissolution the best solution? And in the business world, this typically gets framed as, well, why not just fire or reassign the prospective client instead of investing in coaching? In the world of personal relationships, the question is framed as, why not break up or get divorced instead of investing in coaching? And this can be very shocking for some people. <laughs> and uh, I will admit, off-putting. It's, it's almost as though they think that I have somehow assessed the situation and am rendering a verdict that there's no use in investing in trying to save the relationship, improve the relationship, whatever the case may be. And that's not it at all. Because most often, this is a question that gets introduced pretty early in the conversation when I really don't have a lot of details. But again, the question is designed to flesh out where it is that we have positive intent and Oftentimes, in, especially in corporate team-building environments, this phrasing of positive intent is something that, uh, I guess at this point, is a bit cliche, actually. But really what we're looking at is whether there is still potential. Do we still have two parties who recognize that there is something worth salvaging? There is something worth improving, worth building upon. And without getting into that direct question, you don't really get to assess where the party's minds and hearts are at. So, I thought we might look at a few different factors of this. Because many of my clients have been on the knife edge of a relationship, wondering what to do. And without positive intent, there's nothing on which to build. And these relationships are not necessarily the personal ones, although that definitely has been the case, where individuals are contemplating getting divorced, or if they're not married, breaking up in some other capacity. But the same underlying dynamics apply even in the business context, whether you're in a partnership or whether you're in a corporation and you're in a sort of more traditional employer-employee relationship, because at the end of the day, people don't actually work for a company. They work for a person in the company. And it's those human dynamics, the, that human relationship, that makes the difference. And sure, companies are always talking about their corporate culture. And I think that there is certainly validity, validity to that. 
where is it that the company is living by its values or its principles? What is it investing in? What kind of organization does it want to be? What is the tone and character of the organization that it is attempting to achieve? But as, an, as a human, as an individual human, I, I don't have a direct relationship with an entity. I have a direct relationship with the people in that entity. So today I'm going to be talking about relationships and probably a good amount of the examples are going to be in that more personal context. However, I think that you can take most, if not all, of the concepts and, and principles that we're talking about and apply them into that business setting. And this is actually, just as a brief aside, something that I try to do quite frequently is I try to make sure that the topics that I talk about, or at least the way in which I discuss them, is something that is applicable to a wide variety of areas. Now, it may take a little bit of imagination or extrapolation, but I think you got it in you. Okay, so as we said, without positive intent, there's no foundation on which to build. And that reminds me of this, um, this saying that I came across years ago, and I, I don't remember where, but basically this expression was, marriage is not two people looking at each other. It's two people looking in the same direction. What does that mean? Well, it means that, yes, attraction or mutual interest is a component of a long-term relationship, but that that is not sufficient. That at the end of the day, we also have to be looking at the same goal or the same long-term vision in order for us to continue to be on that long-term path. And again, whether that's a personal relationship or whether that's a career with the same company or building some new enterprise, it's this idea that at the end of the day, and I don't mean a 24-hour period, but at the end of this journey, do we both want to be in the same place? And what does that place look like? So there are times when people are really struggling, clients, and they don't know what they should do. Because as we've talked about in the past, dissonance is hard at work. Part of them wants one thing, another part of them wants something else. Now, for the sake of brevity, <laughs> I guess let's dive into uh, a marriage context. Now, in marriage, there are many marriages out there. And um, if you end up looking back at, oh gosh, what episode was it? I think it was episode 57, where I ended up talking about this idea that a healthy relationship can look a lot of different ways. And the ways in which we tend to limit ourselves because we're subscribing to some preconceived notion delivered by society. And that's fine. If that's, I mean, if that's what's working for you, then great. But for some people, that's not what's working. There are elements of their marriage or business relationship that are spot on, tremendously effective and fulfilling. I know that sounds super romantic in the marriage context to be effective, but partnership, including marriage, is not all romance. It's, it's not all, you know, luxury vacations and candlelit dinners and, and flowers. You know, there's a certain mechanical or logistical component to being in a long-term relationship with someone. You're not always going to be on first date mode. And the same thing applies in the business world. When you're interviewing somebody or a certain position, or you're trying to come up with a business partnership for an entrepreneurial venture, then quite frequently people are on quote-unquote first date behavior. 
they're trying to put their best foot forward. They're trying to um, make themselves seem as attractive and, yeah, I'll just leave it at that, as attractive as possible. And it's, it's logical that they, they do so because they are seeking this opportunity. So what ends up happening, though, is when we're in a long-term relationship, a lot of that stuff starts to fall by the wayside. And I've talked about in previous episodes the, the ways in which we get lazy. But there's also a certain pedestrian quality to the day in, day out. There are certain tasks that have to get done in order to keep the business running or keep the household running. And these more pedestrian, logistical, mechanical elements end up kind of grinding away on that first date mode behavior or presentation. So we have this expression of self and that as I've said to you know all my clients to the point where they're sick of hearing it, we are multitudes and multiplicities. There are many different slices of us, many different flavors of us. And part of us wants one thing, freedom, for instance. Part of us wants excitement. Part of us wants stability. And on and on and on. And so we end up in a place where we're not actually sure what to do. Should we stay or should we go? So part of unpacking this is to, at the deepest level possible, ask yourself, what do you want from the relationship? And this is all about you, your emotional desires and insecurities and quirks. And this is where oftentimes people go off track where they they merely skim the surface and they don't actually have a grasp on what is the deep emotional trigger or driver that is at stake or in play, I guess is probably a better way of saying it. To understand where our insecurities are causing us to act a certain way, to make certain decisions or avoid making certain decisions. And without that information, how far are you going to get in actually creating a workable and highly desirable reality when you don't really truly know what you want at the deepest level possible? And this is an interesting piece. When a couple or a partnership, if we want to kind of frame it more in the business language, if they invest in couple or uh, partner coaching sessions or therapy sessions, and all that's being done is addressing the, the partner dynamic. So in this case, we're, we're talking about two people and the dynamic between them. And if that is the only place that that is being looked at or evaluated or processed, then it ignores the fact that there are two individuals who showed up to that to create the partnership or the, the pair or the couple. And both of those individuals have to be in that place of deep knowing, deep awareness, in order for them to really come to the table with an informed opinion. Otherwise, they're just spinning their wheels, staying at the surface, saying that they want it to look a certain way, but not actually understanding what is the emotional driver that is trying to be met. What is that deep itch that wants to be scratched? And when we look at that, I mean, most of my episodes dive into these various psycho-emotional drivers and triggers. So I don't want to be overly redundant here, but... You know, where is it that you have a desire for security? Where is it that you have a desire for belonging? Where is it that you're not connected or you feel insecure about your value, your worthiness? What are the early life lessons that you learned that you took on yourself 
that informed where you were not valuable, where you were not enough. And it's in that territory, however it shows up, whether it's abuse as a child, physical, mental, emotional, sexual, whether it's some early formative experience in the dating world, maybe um, some sort of betrayal of trust, either from a partner or from some sort of authority figure or some family member, but some sort of corrosion at a very deep level of where it is that you felt comfortable trusting and where it is that you felt comfortable allowing yourself to be open and vulnerable. These are all wonderful places to look. And essentially, you're looking for the things that make you uncomfortable. You're looking for the things that have you feeling that friction, feeling that oppressiveness or the butterflies in your stomach or the desire to look away, the desire to distract yourself. And getting into that space, as uncomfortable as it may be, is what provides that clarity, is what helps you really see at at rock bottom, or uh, another way of uh, probably a more uh, a more beneficial way of saying it, or a positive way of saying it, instead of rock bottom, is bedrock. What is going on at bedrock, and where is it that you are able to identify the dynamic? And sure, yeah, I mean it's self-serving. <laughs> Quite frequently, people are incapable of doing so without help from either a coach or a therapist. But getting that level of awareness is critical because without it, I would argue that you show up to that, that session or that you know negotiating table, if you will, not really actually knowing yourself, not really actually knowing what it is that you deeply want. So, once you've gotten through all of that, the next question that I think is really useful to ask is what function does the relationship serve? So for starters, we'll just use the phrase marriage. So if you are in a marriage, and of course, this again applies to any long-term relationship, business or personal, doesn't matter. If you're looking at marriage, what is it supposed to do? What is that institution or that concept supposed to do for you? Or what is it supposed to do in general? Again, this is your definition. But realize that the other person may very well and probably does have a vastly different opinion. And your assessment or evaluation or definition of what this relationship should be doing is not the objective right answer. It's not the only answer out there. And just because somebody has a different opinion doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go by their opinion. But this is frequently an area where two parties don't have a real clear sense of what they expect marriage to deliver. And so it ties in with that first inquiry because, again, you have two people that aren't really clear about what they want this institution of marriage or this concept of marriage to do. And in both cases, and the third that we'll get into here in a moment, you have individuals who just kind of like are in this space of, ah, yeah, I mean, let's just give it a shot and see how it works out. (laughs) and I mean sometimes it works out great but a lot of times it it's really shitty and you have individuals who don't know themselves and they try to get themselves into a long-term relationship with somebody also who doesn't know themselves and yeah guess what the results generally end up in some sort of fracture or some sort of infidelity to the relationship and again whether that infidelity the lack of faithfulness, the lack of honoring what was tacitly agreed to can apply both in the personal and the professional setting. 
there's an author and uh, she's also a marriage counselor, therapist. And at this point in time, I think she's probably world famous. And her name is Esther Perel. And one of her, I think her most popular book is called Mating in Captivity. And I will try to remember to link that in the show notes. And that book has a great many insights in it. And one of the key ones, at least for today's conversation, is this idea that life is dynamic and that humans are dynamic, or at least they can be (laughs) uh, when they let themselves be. And she makes this point of saying that you will likely have many different relationships throughout the course of your life even if you stay with the same person for that entire time. And you could also substitute company for person. But the point is that we don't stay the same. We're not in these hermetically sealed bags. We live in a highly dynamic, highly fluid, changing environment. And as we learn more about ourselves through the course of our existence, we change and we grow, or at least I hope we do. And I would hope that that would be people's goal in life is to make sure that by the time they die, that they're not dealing with the same issues they were dealing with when they were 12 years old. So it only makes sense that as you progress through life, that you are going to be a different person. Now, you may not be completely different, We may say that the core values are the same, but you may have adopted new values or you may have adopted new interests, interests that never occurred to you when you first entered the relationship. In personal relationships, that could be the interest to live abroad or that could be the interest to explore um, a, a new hobby that is very demanding or to start your own business, which certainly, if you're going to engage in an entrepreneurial venture from having been a W-2 or standard employee, then yeah, that's going to create a big ripple in your home life. And your partner is going to have some pretty big waves to surf in adapting to that. In the professional setting, maybe it's the initial role that you wanted or the initial subject matter or job function, department that you wanted to be a part of is no longer all that interesting to you. You've kind of been there and done that and you want to try something different. You want to stretch and grow and you want to be able to get into new challenges that will help you explore all of your talents and all of your creative energy. For some people, again, back on the personal front, it's opening up the relationship to experience different forms of sexual expression, different forms of intimacy. You know, maybe there's this sensation that things have gotten really stale. And for some, a potential workable solution is to open things up for a bit. Now, I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying that that's the only way to do it or the best way to do it. I'm just saying it is a way to do it. But again, Going back to what we just talked about a few, min- a few minutes ago, if you don't have clear understanding of what deep emotional desires are being, are sort of like driving the bus here, and both people are not in that place of awareness, then your chances of getting to a, a cordial and loving and open agreement get much, much harder. And oftentimes what ends up happening is one party just kind of caves And they just shut down part of themselves in the interest of keeping the relationship going. And of course, that is also another option. That you can, if you choose, shut part of yourself down. I would argue that comes at a pretty significant tax that does end up making itself known in a variety of rather subtle and sometimes not so subtle, but pretty warped ways. So again, if you are going to shut part of yourself down, maybe it's not so much about shutting it down. Maybe it's about trying to find out what is that 
emotional desire or that energetic desire that's trying to be met? And is there another way, some analogous way, of getting it met? So how could that look? Well, let's see. So a big source of tension in a relationship is money and sex. So I guess that's two sources. <laughs> um, so let's look at sex because it is generally pretty simple. So one of the common arguments is around frequency. And then also kind of, mm, what does the sex actually look like? Is it more aggressive? Is it rougher? Or is it gentler and more romantic? You get the idea. But let's just stick with frequency because that is probably going to be pretty easy to explain. And uh, we all like things that are easy. <laughs> so, so when we look at frequency, if one partner wants more and the other partner wants less, how is it that these two individuals get to a place of common ground? Well, for the person who wants more, what is the energy behind it? Is it 100% just some sort of biological urge? Maybe. It's, that's certainly possible. But what if there is also a deeper message being delivered? That the increased frequency is communicating, is a proxy that communicates that there is a high level of intimacy. We so often use sex as some sort of proxy for intimacy. There's an assumption that if I'm going to you know, strip my clothes off and be naked with this other individual or individuals, no judgment, that I must be on pretty intimate terms. Now, I get it, right? We also have like hookup culture, and I would say that the emotional intimacy there is zero. But putting that aside for the moment and assuming that we're actually in relationship with someone. Now, whether that's a committed relationship or not, it's kind of beside the point, but that we've actually reached a place where we do feel invested, that when we get naked with somebody in that context, that we actually are exposing ourselves and that we are putting ourselves in a place of vulnerability. So potentially the increased frequency is not simply a biological urge, but that it is tied to a desire to feel a lot of affirmation that both people are on the same page in terms of intimacy. And it's, it's a difference in perception that the number of times that you have sex in a week communicates this deeper emotional intimacy. And so potentially the person that is wanting to have sex more often, if they were able to look at that dynamic and they were able to see, oh, okay, yeah, I'm really, what I'm really after here is this confirmation that we're, that we're still deeply intimate with each other. Well, then maybe there's some other ways to go about getting that. Ways that would be mutually agreeable. And that's just one example to try to highlight the ways in which we can look below the surface, ways in which we can eliminate our fixation on a certain variable. No, it's got to be, you know, every day. Got to have sex every day. If you stay on that position, and that's where you want to, you know, sort of plant your flag, then you're not actually doing the deeper work to understand why do you have that position in the first place. So same thing when we look at this idea of trying to understand what marriage does for us. Well, then we're in a position to be able to evaluate what function is this relationship serving? So again, for the sake of brevity, let's just stick with marriage. And Esther Perel, in her book, Mating in Captivity, talks a lot about the institution of marriage and the function or the functionality that has been assigned to that institution in various chapters of history. And that in many cases, marriage was not this ultra-romantic or romanticized 
concept, that it was functional, mechanical almost. And that's not to suggest that uh, people didn't feel love, but that there was less expected from the institution. And I think she makes this great point about what is the likelihood if we do recognize that we are multitudes and multiplicities and we have a lot of competing desires, what is the likelihood that our partner is going to be able to fulfill all those different desires? And she talks a lot about how some of these desires are antithetical to one another. On the one hand, we want stability and security because we want to feel safe. Ah, oh, but then on the other hand, we also want to be excited. Mmm, yep. Give me some of that. Right? We want to feel our blood coursing through our veins. We want to feel our heart beating. We want to feel vibrant and alive. And oftentimes, that sense of excitement is driven by uncertainty, risk. If you were never in a position of risking losing something, then quite frequently, we go to sleep. During my combat deployments in Iraq, the times, and, and this has been true for the rest of my life, at least up until this point, <laughs> the times when I have felt the most alive were when I had a bullet or some piece of frag, fragmentation, coming off of an improvised explosive device or a mortar or a rocket that exploded in my vicinity. And to have these, these projectiles zipping past my head at, oh my God, fast, and recognizing after it had passed, because it's happening that quickly, that, oh, I just snap. Like, this thing almost just went through my head and almost ended my life. Those were the times when I felt just electric and so profoundly grateful to be alive, to be able to smell anything. I mean, and trust me, like when you're in combat, it, it's not always a good smelling environment. There's all kinds of things that are on fire, burning, and, and you know, I, I, I won't uh, disgust you with the details, but there's it, just the ability to smell when you recognize that you were almost exited from the planet, exited from life. It's tremendous. So this idea is, you know, we, we risk, and in that risk, we have excitement. We have this profound connection to appreciating what we are able to experience. But excitement flies in the face of security and stability because we're looking at risk. And as I said, Perel does a wonderful job talking about this conflict in her book and introducing this idea that to ask for one person, one person for the rest of your life and life expectancies have gone up significantly over the centuries such that now we're in relationships that are multi-decades long and to have that one person, expecting that one person to fulfill and to perform all of these different aspects of you. You need to be stable and secure and safe, aka boring. But then I also want you to be exciting. And I want you to be a risk taker. And I want you to make me feel like, ooh, maybe this isn't certain. It's like oil and water. And then to compound that even further, what is the challenge on you? to be able to do the mental gymnastics to look at that person and not just see same old, same old. To be able to see that they can still have the capacity to excite you, to surprise you. And in long-term relationships, again, personal or business, doesn't matter, but long-term relationships, we frequently start to run on the pattern of assumption. Oh, this is what they've done all, like the previous hundred times, this is what I'm going to get to see again. And it makes sense that we have that. From an evolutionary perspective, we wanted to be able to move quickly in our thinking to assess threat, 
Do I need to leave right now because I'm about to get my ass chomped by something big and scary? Or can I stay? Can I stay because I'm going to stay and fight and win? Or can I stay because this actually is a friend? Or an ally? In that setting, yes, we wanted very much to very quickly discern pattern. To recognize pattern and to act accordingly. But in today's culture, most of the time, we don't have to make those life and death decisions in a split second. And we're having these tremendously long relationships. And we find ourselves sort of on replay. Not being surprised, not being stimulated, not being excited. Because, oh, we already know what this person is like. So there's a lot of challenges in that. A lot of challenges to be able to see another person's full capacity. To see that they can be many different ways. But understanding what it is that you expect the institution, either marriage or partnership or employment, to be clear about what that institution is giving. What is it? What function is it supposed to perform? To borrow off of Perel's wisdom again, this idea that in the past, marriage was very functional. The man, in certain societies, obviously, was supposed to provide financial security, physical security, discipline for the kids to be the disciplinarian, the heavy hand, if you will. And the woman was supposed to provide, well, children, and to then take care of those children. And I, gr- I get it, that is a, a very gross oversimplification, but it was a clearly defined expectation, societally defined, actually, such that if you start to look at some of the other rituals that we had in society, these things that we no longer actually subscribe to, for instance, wearing black for a year to show that you were in mourning because you lost your partner. And then at the end of a year, you're supposed to be done and move on. Get on with your life. Death used to be a, a far more common part of our life. But gaining this level of clarity around what you expect the, institu- the institution to do is critical for you to be able to recognize how you and the other person are actually relating to one another. Because if you have different ideas about what the institution or the concept is supposed to do, then how can you be in agreement? Last, but certainly not least, is this idea that the devil is in the details. So people love getting into conceptual agreement without actually rooting through the nitty-gritty. But that's where things start to fall apart. So earlier I talked about this idea that, that people don't do the homework ahead of time to actually fully understand what they're looking for. And so instead what you get is kind of this attitude of, ah, oh, fuck it, like we'll just see how it goes. What's interesting about that is that it ties in with uh, another expression that I learned in the military, which is that there's never enough time to do it right but there's always plenty of time to do it over. So we have this, I think, uh, kind of inherent laziness that is baked inside of the human animal. But it reminds me, you know, there was a, when I was going through law school, one of my professors asked a, (laughs) what seemed like a pretty simple question that turned out to be a bit more complex, which is, why do lawyers write contracts? And, If you ask that question to most people, I would guess that the typical answer would be something like, oh, well, you know, so one side can sue the other side when the other side doesn't do what it says it's going to do. And yeah, I mean, that's definitely, that's part of it. But the foundational reason for writing a contract is to actually write in clear language that both parties can understand what the expectations are. What will actually be delivered? 
What will be exchanged for what? Who is responsible for what? If you pay me X amount, then I owe you a product or a service on a certain date, in a certain way. What does it look like? Another example could be clean air and clean water. So just think for a moment about the people that you know. Family, friends, colleagues, um, the, the, the person at the grocery store. Think about all the people that you come in contact with. Do you feel like any one of them would say that they don't want clean air and clean water? I mean, really try to visualize that for a second. Visualize the person that's saying, no, I would much rather have my skies filled with acrid black smoke that burns my lungs and chokes me every time that I uh, step out of the house. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I really struggle to see somebody that's willing to say that. Now, you may have some people that say they don't care because they're already beat down and have too much other shit on their mind. Okay, fine. But as far as like an overt desire, I don't think anybody's going to go there. So we have this sort of implicit understanding that we want clean air and clean water. But then how we actually achieve that, <laughs> oh man, I mean, there are all kinds of different arguments and discussions about the best way to achieve the goal. Likewise, in a relationship, especially long-term relationships, professional or personal, how you get to what you truly, at the deepest level, want matters. And so it's, it's sort of this three-part process. One is really understanding what are the deep emotional drivers inside of you that inform what is it you truly want out of this experience in life. Then two, if we're going to have a certain institution or conceptual framework that we're going to mutually participate in, whether it's a corporation, partnership, or whether it's a marriage, et cetera, et cetera, what are we expecting that vehicle or that institution or that concept to do? What framework is it going to create? And then third, what does it actually look like? So if you want freedom in your marriage, what does freedom look like? Does freedom mean you get to sleep with other people? As long as it's kind of don't ask, don't tell, and there's no drama or throwback on the family in any way? Is it, well, no, it's actually no physical contact, but you can have a real emotional connection with another person. These kind of emotional affairs that occur when one person is feeling really, really lonely, feeling unheard, unseen, feeling as though the emotional intimacy has somehow gone away, or maybe it never really showed up in the first place. But there are other elements of that relationship that work really, really well and I get it. Some of you out there are probably going to be thinking, oh, I mean, come on. If, if it's not 100% a win, then why even do it? And if that's your opinion, great. But in working with people over the years, I've had to recognize that that doesn't always work for folks. You have to be in this place of sensitivity for the fact that sometimes people do feel that you know, 80% or 90% of their marriage or their committed relationship, uh, whether it's business or, or pleasure, is good, really good. But it's just there's an element that is missing, and that element is really difficult and, and, and potentially hurtful or limiting. And if we can get that, that missing element addressed, in a way that works for both parties, is that a good thing? I would suppose it is. 
but obviously it's the process of getting to that mutually agreed upon pathway. And this is where the devil comes in the details. But you don't get to a place of talking about details until you really fully understand where you want to plant your flag in the first place. But the details discussion is often where things heat up the most. Because that's when things start to feel or look real. Previously, it's just conceptual understanding. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. You want freedom? Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds good. I want freedom too. And it's not, again, in the marriage context, it's not until the person's like, well, I, freedom to me looks like sleeping with other people, that all of a sudden <laughs> the partner is like, what? Hell no. Why? Well, I don't know. Because maybe they feel that there's some uh, compromise or some slight to their sense of worth or that they're being disrespected in some way. I'm not going to presume to know all the, the sort of reasons, uh, subconscious reasons that somebody might get upset about that. Maybe there's a sense of scarcity. You know, if, this, if my partner starts to sleep with other people, then eventually he or she is going to leave me and I won't find anybody as good or I won't find anybody, period. And oftentimes in these conversations where they're pining for this person that they would never be able to replace, they seem to somehow ignore that the reason they're talking about this in the first place is because the relationship isn't actually all that good, which is always an interesting thing for me to observe given my uh, greater sense of remove from the situation because obviously I'm not emotionally invested in it and I can have a more objective view where it's kind of like, oh, you know, like why, why is that not an issue worth considering or getting emotionally upset about? I'm being a little bit glib there, but... But I have had that conversation multiple times, and it's it's it tends to be quite eye opening for them, the the client, when I point that out. That well, you're you're pining for this individual, but you're also complaining about the relationship. So yeah, maybe maybe there's something uh, deeper to work out there. So, anyways, getting back into this idea of understanding what are the details about what about the vision that you are trying to create, and how is it that you can have that conversation in a way that is productive, that is caring. And I have mentioned this book numerous times, numerous, numerous, numerous times, but people seem to not want to read it. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to keep recommending it because it is really good at helping you communicate with other people. And again, this is true whether it's business or personal. And that is nonviolent communication. And I will link to that in the show notes as well. But starting from this place of positive intention, starting from a place of fundamental understanding and agreement from both parties and actually getting their overt, explicit acknowledgement and agreement that they want and you want the best for each other. And I know that's again, taking us back to a conceptual starting point. But if you don't have conceptual agreement or conceptual alignment, you're not getting anywhere. You're going, you're not leaving square one. So starting the conversation by recognizing that you both want the best thing for the other person. But it's still to be determined whether that best thing is with each other, or some modified form of with each other, or not at all. But beginning from that place of caring, beginning from that place of openness and overt commitment and communication of your desire for the other person's well-being, even if what you end up talking about feels hurtful in the short term, that ultimately you want that person to be able to thrive. Having that conceptual starting point can make the world of difference in terms of how that conversation goes, as opposed to starting off with, well, this is my agenda, and if you don't like it, you can go fuck yourself, and, um, well, this is pretty much what's going to happen anyway, 
So whether you agree or disagree is really beside the point. I'm just kind of let, letting you know. That generally doesn't go anywhere good. But being able to give the person that clear communication of positive intention and also not springing it on them like some sort of like surprise party. Because I'm pretty sure that if you're talking about something that's going to impact the potential future of a long-term relationship, they don't want it to come in the form of a surprise. So having the ability to communicate with somebody well ahead of any emotionally triggered situation is also quite critical. And you know your person or your business setting well enough, I hope, to understand. And if you don't, feel free to give me a call. Uh, happy to help you out. But that you know it well enough to understand, okay, when is a good time to begin to plant seeds that you want to have this conversation? And then, of course, and this applies more for clients of mine that are, you know, are or have worked with me, because frequently their partner, and this is again in the personal relationship dynamic, or actually sometimes in the business context as well, yeah, their partner isn't working with me or a therapist or a coach or somebody that can actually help them really understand those first two elements that I talked about, you know, really knowing your emotional drivers and then understanding what the institution is supposed to deliver. And so sometimes from an awareness or consciousness perspective, my client ends up being further down the road than the other party. And so there is an element of trying to get the other person uh, caught up is not exactly the right phrase, but it's the best one I got right now. So getting both parties to decent parity in terms of their level of inner understanding and inner awareness, you know, there, that may be part of that process. And so if you're the person who's sort of ahead of the other one, then you might have to dip into patience in a way that feels frustrating. But recognize that if you are the person trying to drive change, chances are you've already been thinking about it. You've already been trying to reconcile the new world order in your mental and emotional framework. And so when you go to somebody and you just kind of drop this bomb on them, they are well behind you. Even if on a uh, sort of mental, emotional, spiritual awareness level, they're at the same place, conceptually, they're not in the same place because you're the one who's been thinking about making this change for however long you've been thinking about it. And so the other person, no matter how quote-unquote enlightened they are, will still require time to wrap their hearts and minds and souls around the, this new world order that you are proposing or that you're looking to explore. So hopefully having that degree of empathy can introduce a greater degree of patience inside of you because I recognize that quite frequently once we get to a certain place of inner resolution, inner decision-making, then we want things to move quite quickly. But the other person is not there. And if you rush it, you will most likely fuck it up. I hope that this topic was not depressing. So when I thought about writing it or uh, scripting it out, well, I don't script things, but <laughs> writing the notes for it, I, I kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit, trying to ascertain for myself whether this would be depressing. Because that's, I mean, that's really not my goal. My goal is to empower people. My goal is to help them achieve the most fulfilled and, dare I say, happy lives that they're capable of achieving. You know, I really truly want people to have amazing lives. I want them to have lives that have them excited and, and feeling this, this profound gratitude for this opportunity that we get. And I know we all face challenges. I face challenges as well. Challenges that test my, my gratefulness and test my enthusiasm for sometimes just waking up in the morning. But the goal is to be in that place of electricity where it's just 
it's amazing to, to be able to experience this world. So looking at that, this concept that I have talked about today, it's not an attempt to be a doomsday sayer. It's not to be cynical. It's to help you gain greater clarity about what you want and how you actually want to go about getting it and who it is that you have in your life sharing that journey. If you have been enjoying the show, it would be absolutely awesome if you would follow or subscribe and, 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 hopefully I'm not asking for too much here, to share it. Share it with people you care about. Share it with people with whom you experience challenge, potentially. Mm-hmm. Yep, 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 yep. Not necessarily your friends, but people with whom you feel you could gain a greater simpatico, a greater working relationship. It's really, truly a pleasure to be able to share my thoughts with you. And I, I hope that they are beneficial. I hope that they help you live a better life. Until next time, take care of each other.